You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For April 28th, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nilder. For as long as I've been an energy analyst, it has been conventional wisdom that public investment into solar should be directed toward utility-scale projects, not distributed rooftop solar systems, because utility-scale systems cost less. So public money invested in utility-scale projects would deliver more bang for the buck, or so the thinking went. And it's true that utility-scale solar is cheaper than rooftop. That's always been true thanks to efficiencies of scale. A typical utility-scale solar plant now costs around a third of what a typical rooftop solar system costs, kilowatt for kilowatt. But what about the other part of the conventional wisdom? Is it also true that utility-scale systems deliver more bang for the buck, and therefore we should steer public money, whether it's in the form of tax credits or rate-based utility investment or direct state and federal spending, away from rooftop solar and toward utility-scale projects? Our guest today says, actually, no. In fact, his modeling shows that investing more public funding into local solar will deliver more public benefits than investing in utility-scale projects. And even more surprisingly, he says that investing more in rooftop solar and distributed storage systems will actually result in more utility-scale solar as well. Plus, it will bring societal benefits to communities such as jobs, increased economic development, increased resilience, and more equitable access to the benefits of renewables. It's just the kind of head-spinning result that longtime listeners to this show have come to expect from our guest today. Christopher Clack, Energy System Modeler Nonpareil, who has joined us previously in Episodes 29, 46, and 111, returns to the show today to share the results of a report he released in December titled, Why Local Solar for All Costs Less, A New Roadmap for the Lowest Cost Grid. By modeling a dizzying set of factors simultaneously, he is able to show that combining many factors leads to synergistic effects that have previously lain undiscovered, factors that we will attempt to describe in this conversation. And with apologies to the laypeople among our listeners, I've given this conversation a geek rating of nine, because it simply would have been too cumbersome to try to tackle this topic while explaining all the terms and the dynamics of the modeling. Then in the news segment, we'll applaud that the largest offshore wind farm in the U.S. has finally gotten a green light. We'll note a major new complex of onshore wind farms in Oklahoma. We'll look at how Japan is preparing for its own explosion of offshore wind. We'll add up some astonishing new numbers for grid-scale storage in the pipeline worldwide. And we'll see how the Biden administration expects to pay for its new infrastructure plan. And now, our conversation with Christopher Clack, recorded March 26, 2021. So let's bring him back into the show now. Welcome back, Christopher, to the Energy Transition Show. Hi, thanks. It's great to be here. This makes your fourth appearance on our show. I believe only Jonathan Kumi has been on the show more often, and that's just because he's our regular guest for the anniversary show. So thanks for sharing your expertise with us once again. 
Absolute pleasure. So today we're going to talk about a report from December 2020 titled Why Local Solar for All Costs Less, a new roadmap for the lowest cost grid, which you developed with funding from Vote Solar, the Coalition for Community Solar, Sunrun, and Local Solar for All. And I wanted to cover this report because it made a claim that I've long believed but never had the data to demonstrate. And that is that local solar, as in rooftop solar and community solar arrays, is actually more cost effective than utility scale solar. In fact, I debated this point a bit in episode 86 with Dr. Inesh Azevedo, who had co-authored a paper asserting that the public benefits of rooftop solar installations, like carbon emissions, were less than the cost of mitigating air pollution and climate change some other way, like utility-scale solar or maybe utility-scale wind farms. In other words, if your research question were, where does public spending find the most climate benefits to the buck, the answer would not be distributed or rooftop solar. Now, I didn't find anything wrong with that analysis per se, but it did seem to me that it left a few things out, like the value of using otherwise wasted rooftop space instead of taking up land space, or the value of generating power that can be used on site without needing to travel over transmission and distribution systems because those cost money. So how did you arrive at your conclusion? What was missing from those previous analyses? Yeah, so I think the primary difference here is we were deliberately co-optimizing our model between the distribution system and the transmission system or the utility grid scale system and the distribution scale system. But we're doing it as one holistic system. So we were taking into account things like having to buy the land or lease the land for utility scale, whereas rooftop you may get it for free or for lower cost. Also, there's industrial lands and also commercial rooftops and things like that that can be used as well as schools and car parks. So there's a lot of land available that can be dual use and that does add cost in terms of installed costs but then you get the benefits of that one is as you pointed out that you're not having to do certain things like move the electrons from a to b along a transmission system you might think that's fine but as you build more and more on the utility grid those networks get congested and we see that a lot today And they're really hard to build transmission systems, particularly the lines going above ground, the big transmission lines, they get a lot of resistance. But also, when we looked at it, we saw that storage being part of that picture also comes into play. But particularly the the distributed solar, what that can do in the distribution grid if you co-optimize it is the model can then recognize that as you build this solar in the distribution grid, you're having to do things to the distribution grid, which is evolving the state of that grid. And therefore, you will make different investments than you would have done otherwise, which then may allow accommodation of more distributed energy sources, or may allow other resources to come in from the utility grid. And as you start trading those things off, as the decisions are being made within the model, it's actually finding new pathways to lower cost systems. That's essentially what's happening in the model. And that's the key ingredient that a lot of these other analyses miss is they basically look at utility PV and distributed PV and think of them as being at the same place, essentially, in model space, minus maybe some transmission losses. But they're not really comparing anything else about the fact that we're going to have to do work on the distribution grid just to absorb the new utility scale generation. And so as we're already upgrading the distribution grid itself, we basically built that into the model and said, look, we're doing these changes. This costs money. What happens as we build it out? And so we have to deal with backflow. We have to deal with 
the vulnerability of putting too much generation on the distribution side and maybe pay for upgrades for that. But when you do that, the model recognizes that's a cost. And so it's then thinking about the whole system slightly differently. And so even though it sounds like a simple thing, adding some representation of the distribution grid where it's actually co-optimized with the model rather than just being sort of a priori or post-processing, we see that that actually fundamentally changes how the model solves. So there's also, in addition to recognizing that the actual cost of beefing up the distribution grid and so on, there's actually also an opportunity cost element here, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. what else you might have done if you hadn't had to spend the money on this other thing? Yeah, exactly. So what we found when we did this was we ran these scenarios separately and then compare them to each other. And so what we found was the trajectory was in the first five to 10 years, with the DERs turned on, it was very slightly more expensive because it's making more investments in the distribution grid than it would have done otherwise. But then that reaps huge rewards later on. It allows more access to utility scale, wind and solar in particular, but also other generation. And the distribution side can handle all that and it doesn't have to then beef it out at a later date and trying to do that at the same time as these sort of RPS constraints come into play and things like that. So you get this double kind of play on you spend a little bit of money early on, it looks like, and then you get this huge payoff. And it's not very long afterwards. By 2025, you're starting to see benefits. And then by 2030, you're already making money on your investments. Interesting. You said a moment ago that transmission lines have a lot of resistance. I thought the whole point of high voltage was that it overcomes resistance. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. <laughs> uh, it does indeed. And Good. <laughs> yeah, I agree. But there is always still some. So this is a really interesting aspect that you're basically getting sort of double benefit then, right? From that investment Mm -hmm. that you have to make in the TND infrastructure, it's also allowing more utility scale solar and wind to come on the grid. Just the fact that you're making that investment for the local solar. That's, I think, a very, maybe even a novel finding. Yeah. So what we found, and we had to go back and check the code time and time again for this, which is you get this saving in the distribution grid by building this system out in sort of a clever way in the distribution system. And others have found that. What we found really kind of interesting and a bit more nuanced and took a while to understand is when you do that and solar and storage are built out together on the distribution grid, you suddenly get all that load flexibility that everyone always talks about of, you know, internet of things, lots of demand side flexibility. We build that all into the model. There are some physical parameters that restrict how much you can do those sort of things. You're an expert on how EVs could do these sort of things, but there is some restriction to that, right? And what we found was as you bring in this sort of distribution storage with the PV, what we actually find is you can reshape what the utility sees as a load and what that does is it means basically you can move demand to supply rather than everything we've done throughout history in electricity is reform the supply to equal demand with a little bit of shaving here and there but now what we found with this model is that if you invest in the distribution grid build lots of distributed solar and storage you essentially can get all that reshaping that you've ever wanted to unlock the wind and solar that's variable. And they can then work together as a team in unison to minimize the amount of transmission that needs to be built, minimize the amount of storage that needs to be built, and then also minimize the infrastructure in the distribution grid that needs to be built to handle that. If you think of a grid that needs to absorb a 1,000 megawatts 
but you only need to do that three hours or 30 hours of the year. And you can suddenly change that to be 500 megawatts, but for 80 hours of the year or 1,000 hours of the year, if you want to really stretch it, you can really reduce the cost of the distribution grid that you need to build out to absorb that energy because you're redistributing it with the storage and solar within that footprint. And so you're doing it in a way that really is more advanced. You're basically taking the whole system and connecting it together finally. And that, as we found with many models that we've done, ends up unlocking way more opportunity than people would first think when they just look through typical modeling. You know, that's fascinating. I mean, it makes perfect sense logically, but it makes me think that, wow, this is actually... This is actually an advance from a modeling perspective, right? I mean, I think what you've basically done here is shown that by doing more sophisticated modeling that had been done in the past, you're able to demonstrate some benefits that weren't really visible before. Yeah, I mean, so the longest thing for us when we did this project working with uh, CCSA, Local Solar for All, and Vote Solar was, was really taking our time in finding a way to model the distribution grid in some granularity, some parameterization that could solve the whole nation at the same time, whilst also seeing some of the benefits. And so it took a lot of iterations to do this. Mm. And by doing it, we were doing it first, in our opinion, we couldn't find anything in the literature that was doing this. And so we then had to test it, we had to think about is this doing it the right way. So whenever you do something first, the immediate thing is, are we doing it right? It hasn't been tested. Is it really robust? And so we did hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of simulations of different perturbations of this. And in the end, it comes out to be fairly simple additions that we hope other models can just adopt and use as well. But it really changes how the model thinks. And that was the biggest step for us that was kind of made us sit back and think a lot is this what seems like a simple change made a huge dramatic change in the whole construct of how the model's thinking. And so as soon as you do that, you can't just use sort of analog thinking of what some other models have done, because you're fundamentally changing the paradigm that the model's thinking on. And so you can't really say, well, my model doesn't say this, because you go, well, we'll put this in your model and see if it says the same thing before claiming that it doesn't do it because it doesn't do it because it can't see it. It doesn't know it exists. Right, right, exactly. Stick that in your model and smoke it. Well, (laughs) you know, another thing that I think is also maybe a little different about the model that you've done here is that the data resolution is higher, right? You're using Mm -hmm. more granular data from both a temporal and a spatial and weather perspective, right? Yeah, so I originally built Wisdom from the ground up to really think about weather from the get-go. And so originally we did high resolution wind and solar data. You can remember back to our previous shows way back when when I was at NOAA and I was working with 13 kilometer hourly. When I built Wisdom, that's kind of the resolution I was starting at, but then I moved to three kilometers, 15 minutely, and now we've got five minutely. Wow. But then we found, well, actually, it affects the line ratings on the transmission lines. It affects the water temperature for thermal power plants. It affects the heat rates of thermal power plants. It changes the load profiles. It changes the wind and solar, of course. And so as we've advanced, we've actually incorporated more and more weather into the model to give us more and more resolution and thinking of what's going on. So, for example, we model the natural gas grid at the same time, so we know where the pressures are. Is there enough gas getting to the gas turbines during cold snaps? 
do we have to build those out? Do we have to build that technology out to be able to support reliability? And so it's thinking about all these additional things that it didn't before, our model and others. And now we're bringing in this distribution piece as well, which is giving it basically a whole new world to look into. And so each iteration that we're doing is giving it more granularity. And obviously other models are getting better and better. But what we tried to do with this is think of it from a, is there details that we need to put in that gives us a better representation? And so one that we did a while back before this study was heat rates being related to outside temperature. For example, natural gas gets burnt when you're trying to heat the turbines to produce electricity. And so if you're in hotter climates, your heat rates is worse. And if you're in colder climates, it's better. And so in the middle of summer, when you need that peak, you know, you need a lot more natural gas than you would think otherwise to reach that peak. Whereas solar, you get more irradiance, but it gets hotter. So they're all linked, they're all correlated. And we give the model as much information as possible to then tell us what it thinks and then we try and pick apart why is it doing that is it's just an artifact of what we've done and it's not really physical or is it really something else so one of the sort of detriments of having a really detailed model is you have to spend longer thinking about the consequences of the results hmm. wow you know that makes me think didn't i see a tweet go by recently about that you had done an analysis on the texas situation which just happened we did yes we just released that this week we did a it started off being short, it ended up being 20 odd pages, which depending on who you are, could be short. But <laughs> we basically, we saw a lot of information about natural gas saved the day and wind caused reliability issues. And I was skeptical based on just seeing what the temperatures were and seeing what the wind generation was from our forecast. So we just ran the numbers from our predictions with winterization, without winterization and stuff like that. And we found that basically if in Texas the wind had been fully winterized, we could have we could have actually produced as much electricity as we lost from natural gas. The timing wouldn't have been exactly right for covering all that power, but but if with storage we would have probably been able to cover it. And so we did some simple analysis of connecting ERCOT to some other RTOs and, and we found it was pretty easy to deal with the extreme situation. And the reason we did that was we have this long-term data set. It's about 175 years long. And what we call as an unprecedented event isn't. And they're only going to get more frequent with climate change. And it's been shown that it's going to get more frequent. So we just wanted to use our expertise with the data we've got and just output it quickly to see what happened. And, and I'm sure others will do more work and look at it in more detail than we did. But we really wanted to show that from our perspective, wind really did exceptionally well, even with the problems it had. And solar did even better than that. And if there'd been more solar, we would have had a, a much better time. And distributed solar would have been even even better for that as well. Mm. Well, I'll have to put a link to that in the show notes of the episode just before this one, which was all about what happened in Texas. Mm. I'm sure some folks will find that interesting. Well, let's dig into some of the details of this analysis and just really understand why you're making this assertion that local solar basically costs less. Mm -hmm. How much of that owes to the transmission and distribution costs that we were talking about a moment ago? I mean, are they as important as I suspected? Like, how much do they really tilt the balance in favor of distributed solar? So what we kind of found sort of counterintuitively is when the model does this, we actually spend more money on transmission. Where we build the transmission in the model is different in the different cases, but we actually end up spending slightly more. So not much different but we do build slightly more. We save a bunch of money 
on the distribution side because we don't have to really build it out for those big peaks. Mm. And we don't have to absorb all those huge kilowatts. We can sort of smooth it out a lot, which is where we get a lot of the savings. And then the secondary savings come from we're not having to build out duplicated or really low capacity factor generation. That's where the third kind of tranche comes from. You don't have to curtail as much, but you also don't need those either dirty peakers or kind of expensive storage to give you that last kilowatt right in the peak of summer because you've kind of you've dispersed it out across the distribution grid so you sort of you're smoothing everything out by building these resources in kind of strategic places in the distribution as well as in the utility grid so that you're minimizing all the assets that you need so overall we find that transmission you could argue could stay the same if you did things slightly differently, but it's slightly more transmission, but in better resource locations. And then we get big savings in the distribution, not because we're not investing in the distribution, we're actually spending more in the distribution than we are today. But what we're doing with those dollars is very different. And then that enables other assets to come in and lets you reduce costs elsewhere. And so as a net, we're saving roughly about 0.4 cents a kilowatt hour for every kilowatt hour in the US on the distribution. That's kind of the range that we're looking at. So four bucks a, a megawatt hour. I mean, that's a pretty significant piece of the cost, mm -hmm. especially in a world where we're now seeing utility scale wind and solar projects regularly coming in in that sort of 20 to $25 range. Yep. Yeah, and that's before they connect to a grid and there's congestion and there's... right. I think the DOE just announced a target of two cents per kilowatt hour solar by 2030. Mm -hmm. I think that's their goal for mm -hmm. utility scale before subsidies, I'm assuming. So if $4 of that is the difference, it's a significant percentage, 15, 20% or so is a lot to save when everything is on such a fine margin. These costs are racing down. They're coming down faster and faster. And, and the thing that we found with the modeling was we were deploying rooftop commercial and community solar at a very, very fast rate in the early years. And in the later years, it kind of slows down a bit just because we'd just done his job of being able to reshape the load. But it means that it's bringing jobs and resources closer to the load centers, which then unlocks more utility scale elsewhere. So we could even see lower prices. So I think in our model, we're seeing around 16 to 18 dollar solar by 2040 because of the the cost saving of not needing as much curtailment on the grid oh that's an interesting point that i hadn't really thought about here so how much does the deployment of local solar help you with the curtailment issue for utility scale yeah so for utility scale we up until 2045 we basically eliminate curtailment wow almost entirely wow we hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show.
In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. The Biden administration finally approved Vineyard Wind, the first large-scale offshore wind farm in the U.S. And if that sounds familiar, it might be because we mentioned it on this show several times, starting with episode 76 in 2018. Located about 12 nautical miles off the coast of Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, the project fulfills a vision that is two decades old. Earlier iterations of the idea were killed by well-funded and organized opposition from waterfront property managers near the island, including Senator Ted Kennedy, who died in 2009, and the billionaire oil baron, William Koch. In early March, the $2.8 billion project received approval of a final environmental review from the Interior Department. The wind farm will now be built several miles south of the original plan fought by the Kennedy family, out of sight of the family's compound. Avangrid Renewables and Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners are building the 800-megawatt 84-turbine project, which is scheduled to start generating in 2023. According to the American Clean Power Association, six states along the East Coast have set targets to procure another 25 gigawatts of offshore wind projects by 2035, collectively. Item 2. GE Renewable Energy announced that it has been selected to provide wind turbines for its largest onshore wind project ever. The 1.5-gigawatt North Central Wind Energy Facilities in Oklahoma is a group of three wind farms in North Central Oklahoma. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.